Are ventilators killing COVID-19 patients? I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. I'll be joined today by Dr. Bill Croft. Dr. Croft is the Executive Director of the North Carolina Respiratory Care Board. We'll talk about how mechanical ventilation helps or harms patients with COVID-19 and what options might be available to respiratory therapists or to physicians. Ventilating the COVID-19 patient next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Bill Croft, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate you having me. What does the executive director of a respiratory care board in the state do? Well, the board itself regulates the practice of respiratory care, which affects the public health, safety, and welfare. What we do is we license persons who provide respiratory care. In that process, we ensure their competency and their quality of care. Now, our mission and the reason we were established was to protect the public from unqualified practice of respiratory care and unprofessional conduct by persons licensed by the board. But the mission is actually threefold. One is competency through formal and informal education and national testing. The second is to investigate and adjudicate complaints against practitioners or unlicensed individuals. And then lastly, we actually address a range of issues related to practice through the passage of rulings and position statements. When a scope of practice issue arises or there's guidance that is needed by the respiratory profession, usually comes in the form of a request. What we do in the entire process of adjudicating matters, investigating matters, issuing position statements and rulings, we rely heavily upon the practice guidelines that the American Association for Respiratory Care, or the ARC, established, mainly because we're linked in our statute to the American Association for Respiratory Care. And I don't know how much you know about the whole field itself. I'm sure you're familiar with respiratory care practitioners or respiratory therapists, but as a healthcare discipline, we specialize in the promotion of optimum cardiopulmonary function and health and wellness. We use the scientific principles to identify and treat those acute chronic conditions of the cardiopulmonary system. But again, we base it off of good clinical practice guidelines, which were established by the AARC. What we do is we regulate the practice, but we use those guidelines as a guide to determine whether or not someone, for example, is competent to do those procedures. And some of the rulings we might issue would be, if you're going to do a certain type of procedure, you have to have this additional education and training, just as an example. So one of the things that came up in the news, in fact, just yesterday, was a JAMA article that was about how ventilators in New York potentially are killing patients with COVID. What the heck is going on, Bill? Well, it's a little complicated. When you look at the pathology of ARDS, for example, acute respiratory distress syndrome, mm-hmm. it evolves. It has several different iterations over time. And the pathology of what we're seeing in many of the COVID patients is acting similarly to ARDS, but also similarly to another condition called high-altitude pulmonary edema. The reason is because pulmonary edema by itself is just when fluid actually moves from one compartment which is the blood supply in the lungs, moves into the terminal lung units, and it moves into the alveoli, which is where the gas exchange occurs. And as gas enters the lung and you have fluid entering the lung at the same time, you get this pulmonary edema and what we would call, in many cases, culminating pulmonary edema that contains a lot of blood cells, fluid, etc. High-altitude pulmonary edema, ARDS, are two forms of what we call non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. But the causes are completely different, of course. What some 
are saying is that COVID-19 lungs appear in the beginning like the high-altitude pulmonary edema patients. Both conditions are deadly. They're very life-threatening, and they have to be treated immediately. The difference is, of course, that ARDS and the COVID lung is brought on by inflammation from a cytokine storm. And again, the difference between COVID-19 patients and a traditional ARDS patient would be what was the trigger for that inflammation. Well, in this case, COVID-19 is a virus. With ARDS, it could be a virus. It could be a number of things, such as trauma. It could even be mechanical ventilation itself. Am I reading that correctly, that potentially the reason that mechanical ventilators might be deadly for patients, at least in how they're being used, would be because COVID is neither HAPE, HAPE, or ARDS? Well, I think what's happening is we're seeing a rapid evolution of a lung condition that's probably faster than ARDS. It can take seven days for ARDS to actually set in from an infection. But this seems pretty rapid by comparison. So that's where, when you look at high-altitude pulmonary edema, it's similar because it's rapid. And anytime you have a rapid change in, say, the hemodynamics of the patient or a rapid change in fluid balance in the patient, that can disrupt that fluid very quickly and cause it to move into the alveoli. Let's point up some old data on mechanical ventilation that we've known for, gosh, almost 30 years now. And this is a study that was actually done in 1994. And it basically looked at all the published literature at the time. And this is what it said. Closed system positive pressure mechanical ventilation applied to mild to moderate levels of intensity is safe. On the other hand, intensive levels of mechanical ventilator support or inappropriate methods of applying mechanical ventilation may be accompanied by a variety of risk hazards and adverse effects and complications. Now, among those complications, we've known for a long time. But what they go on to say in the final conclusion, but because of the unfavorable risk-benefit ratio of intensive positive pressure mechanical ventilation, physicians should consider the use of alternative methods that are now available to augment gas exchange in acute respiratory failure. This is how we've operated for my entire career. And we have a saying, we would rather not put you on a ventilator. We would do everything we could to keep you off of a ventilator because that's a much more aggressive approach to treatment. It will save your life if needed, but it comes with complications. Buried in what you just said, if I understood it correctly, Dr. Croft, was it wasn't that it was ventilation, say, but too much ventilation. The ventilators were too powerful. The settings were set too high. That's what we've known for 30 years. And when you said 1994, well, you made me feel old because <laughs> I, I remember 1994 and now... Uh, yeah, well, we've known it longer than 1994, obviously, because when I started teaching and when I was even in school, we learned that, for example, one of the hazards of mechanical ventilation is an hemothorax, damage to the airway, to the alveolus itself. It can cause or can be related to as a pathway for ventilator-associated pneumonias. And there's a whole bunch of issues that can complicate matters. If somebody's on a ventilator too long, their diaphragm atrophies, we can decrease their cardiac output. We can even have oxygen toxicity. So these are all things that we try to avoid by not putting someone on a ventilator. Now, so when you put somebody on a closed system of invasive ventilation, the ventilator is doing the work for you. And this is how I would describe it. You are reversing normal physiology when you do that. And when you reverse normal physiology, it comes with effects. We normally breathe in. And when we breathe in on a normal basis, we generate a negative pressure around our lungs, not a positive pressure. 
that negative pressure actually enhances blood return back to the heart. It enhances the ability of the blood flow through the lungs. But when you reverse that, you decrease the amount of blood flow going to the heart and therefore decrease the amount of blood flow going through the system. And the higher the pressure, the higher the volume, the greater the chance of that happening. So what do we do? Clearly, the patients, they're dying. They need to have some way to get air in there. I assume we're not going to put them in what deep sea divers use to breathe with that are liquid breathing kind of systems. They're still going to need air or oxygen of some level. We can't put in too much because it reverses the physiology and damages the airways. So what options do we have left? Well, and what's interesting is we were talking about Maslow's hammer. All you have is a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. And I should say that the reason the approach was taken is because the World Health Organization identified it early on as ARDS. The action was because of its contagiousness, we should intubate immediately to avoid spread. But here's the thing. We intubate for protection of the airway. We intubate to facilitate mechanical ventilation. We do not intubate to reduce aerosolization of particles. We would protect the patient's airway. We would provide ventilation. What that means is the leap to go to full ventilation was made based on recommendations from the World Health Organization. Everybody was kind of following suit, thinking, well, this is a good idea. We should not use non-invasive means because we want to restrict the the aerosolization of the COVID-19 virus. So let's get back to what we would do, say, for cardiogenic or other forms of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, like high altitude. We basically give supportive care. We start with regular oxygen. We can move to a low-flow manner. We can move to high-flow nasal cannula. And those high-flow nasal cannulas can generate flows like 30 liters a minute, which can really help reduce the work of breathing of the patient. If that does not work, we can move to non-invasive bilevel systems, that would be applied by a mask as opposed to intubation. Now, remember, intubation requires that we insert a tube into your lungs. And when we do that, we're now also breaking into the lungs in a sense. Now there's a pathway for bacteria to get into the lungs, more so than there was before because you don't have your normal epiglottic mechanism to protect your airway. When you introduce that tube, you also introduce the pathway for more organisms to get into the lung. That's where ventilator-associated pneumonias come in and why they can be so problematic. High-flow nasal cannula, non-invasive high-level system. Now, with high-altitude pulmonary edema, we also have the option of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I don't think that's practical in this case because you can't put all of those patients in a hyperbaric chamber, but what you can do is you can provide them support. You can treat the underlying inflammatory problem. Now, there's a lot of debate as to what that treatment should be, but certainly taking the approach of addressing the inflammation seems to be key regardless of the cause, because the inflammation is the cause of all of these issues, and of course, the cytokine storm that actually causes that inflammation. So we can either deal with the inflammation or we can maybe prevent or limit the amount of cytokine release. So medications could help balance that out. Wouldn't require that invasive technique. But if we have to go to invasive to save your life, we will. So the next step would be let's go to invasive bi-level. And the difference between invasive bi-level and regular invasive ventilation would be the fact that 
shear forces within the lung aren't as great. It has a lot to do with the way the device is designed, but those eye-level devices that were designed for non-invasive purposes were never designed to necessarily provide full support, but they can provide a high degree of support, maybe just enough to prevent us from having to use some of the higher pressures or volumes. So there are quite a few things that can be done. And just so you'll know, in a typical ARDS patient, we provide nutritional support, chest physiotherapy, we treat the sepsis, and that's where the azithromycin comes in, and then, of course, potentially dialysis as well for an ARDS patient. So there are other things that they have to address, but I think the clinical numbers should guide those types of things. What is the nutritional status? Do we need dialysis for this patient to get them over the hump? I just think we have to look at it more supportive than we have been looking at it to prevent us from having to put them on the ventilator. So I also see, and it's as though there's two competing options and there's a merge between the two that are there. There's the non-invasive version. This is where you use a mask. From some of the papers that I've been reading, every time you adjust the mask, it's a similar risk to when you intubate the patient. You intubate the patient once in terms of aerosolization. So it does seem like the mask itself might present an aerosol risk that being on mechanical ventilation does, but only one time as opposed to every single time somebody adjusts the mask. At the other end is full mechanical ventilation with intubation. An invasive tube is going into your lung, which has those other risks that you mentioned. But the problem is that it was paired with high pressures, higher systems. You just mentioned kind of a middle ground of using the intubation, which can avoid the aerosol risk or at least minimize it, and lower pressures that could be provided by mechanical ventilation, but also by, you mentioned, bi-level devices. These devices are at excess often in hospital systems, whereas mechanical ventilators could be in a shortage depending on whether or not they've managed to buy enough. Have I more or less recapitulated reality? <laughs> well, I think you're right. There are quite a few bi-level systems that are sitting on standby. But to be quite honest with you right now, at least in North Carolina, there's a lot of ventilators on standby right now. Just to give you a few numbers, I'm running these almost daily now because I want to find out where we are at the moment. And I believe, let's see, we have, as of 14th, we had 684 patients on the ventilators. As of 21st, we had 713. Now, that's out of 3,146 full-function ventilators. Again, we're not seeing the number of people going on the ventilators like in some states because that 713 for this week represents all cases, COVID and non-COVID cases. There's only 455 people in the hospital in our state who have COVID-19. Clearly, all 713 patients are not COVID patients. We'll just say 50%. I mean, who knows? Because they don't report them based on COVID or non-COVID. They just group them together. We're seeing sort of this constant back and forth between, is it 684, 713? I think I looked yesterday and it was down to 655 again. But again, we had more deaths too, so that accounts for some of that drop. So at some point, and it sounds like that's the point that we're at at North Carolina, the number of new patients in equals the patients out. And if I'm just doing the math correctly from what I heard, we have about 2,400 ventilators there. And I think that one of the things that probably surprises people as they're following this in the news is that at the beginning, when we saw exponential growth for the entire nation, that was doubling every three days. How many ventilators did we need was, well, how long is this going to go on? And the more it goes on, you just wait three days, it was going to be twice as bad, essentially. 
that didn't continue forever, thank goodness. Now we're at the point in North Carolina where we're doubling every nine days, maybe every 10 days, in terms of numbers of deaths, which will more or less parallel the number of ventilators that you need. So completely understandable that right now we're at a safe level, but it's probably helpful to think about how long does it take before it becomes a problematic level. I think that's the other thing that people might not be cognizant of is that even with this vast excess of ventilators right now, we can be three weeks away on just current trends of being completely out of them. Is that still something that you see as problematic or is it, well, you know what, that's enough time. That's when the manufacturing will ramp up. Just what's your reaction to something like that? Let's assume for just a moment that we have 3,200 ICU beds. So we should have 3,200 ventilators. That doesn't count the flex beds. We went up to the flex beds, that would be 3,500. So I do believe we're in an excess of what's currently being used. I don't believe we're in an excess in terms of full functioning ventilators, because if we had an excess, we would have more than 3,500 full functioning ventilators. But we're pretty close to at least servicing all ICU beds in North Carolina with the ventilators. If we did have a surge that hasn't occurred yet, but if we do have that surge, we still have all of those bi-level units, which are not being counted in that total amount. I feel we do have the backups from that perspective. We don't have the backups beyond the 3,500 beds or 3,500 roughly, we'll just say 3,200, which is closer number to what we actually have. So I don't really consider us in an excess of full functioning ventilators, but we're close. And my understanding is that many hospitals are still acquiring ventilators. So that may change next week because just two weeks ago, maybe it was even a week ago, we had only 2,800. Two weeks prior to that, we were in a deficit of 1,100, which meant that we could only service around 2,000 of the ICU beds in North Carolina. So we've come a long ways in about three weeks. That trend is really positive because that number of total ventilators keeps going up. Can we talk about rural hospitals? I come from a small town in Oregon. Population is about 13,000. The county's total is about 26,000. The largest hospital in town has 49 beds. It has five to six ventilators, and it is the largest hospital in about an 80-mile radius. That doesn't leave a lot of buffer. What would you recommend for those hospitals to think about now? There are not many cases in my hometown of the Dallas, Oregon. What do you say to a place like the Dallas, which has between five and six ventilators, 49 beds, but only 11 cases they've even detected in town? Is this something that they still need to be at least concerned about their ventilator capacity? Or is it something that there's now enough flex capacity that you can see them being not in a particularly problematic situation? In North Carolina, the rural hospitals are typically the ones that have less access to supplies, including ventilators. I would say to any rural hospital, they should have at least the number of ventilators that could service their ICU beds. And if they don't, then I would be concerned. If I was giving advice to an administrator, I would say, in the case you described, it doesn't sound like they're very prepared. They don't have what they need. What we did in early March is we leaped into this whole process very quickly, and we did a survey of the managers. And the managers responded as to how many ventilators they had, because we weren't really sure at the time how many ventilators they had. And when they did respond, we then sent them resources to try to go ahead and get ahead of the curve. And many of them did that. I think I mentioned to you the other day that one hospital reported over 100 ventilators in use 
but they had 100 ventilators in backup. This is a very large facility, obviously, but that was pretty impressive. I said, how many ventilators do you need? They said, we don't anticipate needing anymore. So they felt prepared enough because they had twice as many as they were currently ventilating. So maybe that's a standard that you have at least twice as many ventilators as you're currently ventilating at this moment. But I would say, look at your ICU beds. How many do you have? You should have a ventilator for each one. Beyond that, maybe we should look at how many bi-level units you have, because those overflow beds are the beds that aren't being currently used because of all the cancellations or elective procedures. They could be used, but I think what we have to be careful of is to ensure that they also are negative pressure rooms. As if we were just talking about non-invasive causing aerosolization, if we were going to use non-invasive, it's important that if we are going to use non-invasive that we protect the system entirely. So that would require that each of those rooms be converted to a negative pressure room to ensure that any aerosols that are generated will actually be evacuated from the room. And of course, you can still have all the protective measures in place as well. They do have a sleep center. They have 10 hospital grade bi-level devices within that sleep center. And I don't know how many they have within the hospital. So they do have at least that defense in depth backup. (laughs) As kind of a final question, Dr. Croft, I'm wondering if you could comment on, you sent a letter out, press release out to the respiratory therapists in the state of North Carolina, pointing them at the www.covid-bipapinfo.com website that we made to train physicians and respiratory therapists on the use of bi-level devices, and especially invasive BiPAP, but bi-level devices in general for COVID. What value, if any, do you now see to the push to this training and what it might do for hospitals that are rural hospitals or even uh, larger hospitals that haven't considered the use of bi-level devices in COVID-19 patients? Well, the message that we sent out was for them to consider using it as invasive high-level ventilation. Because at the time that we sent it, as we had discussed, they were only considering invasive ventilation, full ventilation. They weren't even considering using these, mainly because they were labeled as non-invasive ventilators. So the push was to get them to rethink this whole process. Here's why. If you will recall, there was a lot of noise taking one ventilator and ventilating two or more patients. We felt immediately this was a bad idea. You could just imagine what could happen. It has been untested in humans. It has only been dense tested. And they were calling me to ask us for our guidance. And I could not in good conscience say, that is a good idea. I think you should do it. My first question to them was, why do you think it would be beneficial to the patient? And they said, well, it's a last-ditch effort. And again, I said, why do you think it would be more beneficial to do that than, say, non-invasive ventilation. And they gave me the issue about the aerosolization. I said, why don't you consider using it as invasive? And at that point, I realized that we needed to do two things. We needed to warn about the use of one ventilator for two patients. At the same time, give them an option. Because at the time, they were not considering any other option but intubation and full ventilation. And if you really think about it, using a ventilator for two patients could be a complete disaster. If I took that before an institutional review board to get a study done in humans, it would be denied on ethical grounds. That was my question to them. Could you get this approved by your IRB? And they said, well, no. And I said, well, then we should not 
be doing something we could not ethically do under normal circumstances. I said, we should think out of the box, think of what we can do. And I said, here's an option. At the time, we didn't have the press release ready, and I think we were just in discussions about it. But as soon as we got that out, that facility actually purchased 400 bi-level units. So it shifted the mindset of, wait a minute, we can do this differently. And we felt that we may have averted some possibly negative consequences. Because aside from mechanical ventilation having negative consequences, like air leaks and ventilator-induced lung damage, you could not guarantee when you have two patients on one ventilator who would get the most ventilation. If one patient got plugged off because of debris in their airways, all of the ventilation would go to the other patient. So two patients are now compromised because one is getting all the ventilation and the other one is getting very little ventilation. So it was never a good idea and high-level ventilation using invasive means was a much better alternative to consider. Well, really glad to hear that some hospitals in our area were able to, through your help and through the training, realize that bi-level devices could be used in the system. They could purchase them, not consider this more dangerous option of mechanical ventilation with two or more patients, and also didn't have to buy mechanical ventilators, which are not cheap these days as every state is looking for them. Yes, I agree. Bill Croft, thank you so much for joining us on the Cineos Health Podcast. It's been a pleasure. All right, well, thank you very much, Jeff. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have comments, suggestions, questions, or if you just want to talk through a particular challenge that you're having at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at where consultants, that's what we do. Thank you.